Hi there, everybody. Kyle Denton with Leadership Daily with co-host Nicole Taylor. Yeah, today we're just going to have a great conversation where we're going to look at stereotypes and how that impacts your identity and your performance. Oh, wow. That's huge. All right, everybody, stay tuned. And don't forget, share with a friend who'd be interested in learning about this topic. Welcome to Leadership Daily, where together we answer what's next for the future of leadership. We're talking all about... uh... Attachment. Do you know anything about attachment? Attachment theory? Yeah. I mean, probably not as much of a, as a counselor. I'm always willing to learn more. Tell me about it's just, it. Like so fascinating. Basically, your caregiver when you're a kid teaches you about yourself by mirroring back to you appropriate responses. Well, you would hope are appropriate responses if you want to create a secure attachment. They're basically mirroring back to you who you are. You know, you get angry. And they mirror back your emotions and that helps you figure out who you are and it creates an attachment and connection to another person. It's like, it's really fascinating. They found like these mirror neurons even in uh, mm-hmm. in monkeys and such where... Humans too. Well, I, I mean, I know, but I mean, even like other other animals, that's how you could feel what someone else is feeling. And so anyway, it's just, it's really interesting the science behind how that allows you to attach to someone else in a secure attachment your caregiver had this relationship with you where you felt safe and secure, even though it wasn't perfect, you felt like they were going to be there for you. And in general, you feel like people in the world are going to show up for you and you feel overall safe, even if some bad things have happened to you. Man, I've been going through this book talking about attachment uh, theory. I was just like, oh my God, (laughs) it makes you figure out your own attachment first. So that you can then like realize where you're coming from. And I was like, wow. Here's something super crazy, Nicole. What? The same mechanisms that they talk about in attachment theory are also talked about in identity theory. And what is identity theory? It is how you form your self-concept through reflections from others' responses. Yeah. So that's the crazy thing, right? Is that as I'm as I'm learning about attachment theory. I thought I already knew what my attachment style was, but then as I was reading through the book, I was like, uh-oh, I think mine's like the bad one. There's like, <laughs> there's like avoidant and then there's anxious. None of those are necessarily good, but then the author's like, but then there's disorganized. See, at least the avoidant and the anxious person, like they have a consistent method, although it's not like very good. It's at least consistent, but they're like the disorganized person. They go back and forth because they don't even have consistency in their negative attachment style. And I was just like, oh my God, that's me. Like, I realized that I also have different attachment styles in different places. Mm-hmm. So like at work, I'm pretty avoidant. I'll be like, for the most part, like, I care about people. I really do. But it's like in a work context. Yeah. But a lot of times, <laughs> this is terrible. I've I've been working on this, but a few years ago, it's kind of like, I don't, that's like information I don't need to know. Um, (laughs) And then I realized, okay, no, some people like that. Some people like to talk about their family. So that's important to them. So it should be important to you. I think that's kind of the avoidant. We're here to focus on work. 
I don't want to get into this personal connection. I'm never going to really know you. We're not going to be friends. I can't count on you to be there for me personally. We're just colleagues. Do form stronger attachments too. And like, I really care about, but for the most part, people at work, I'm just kind of like, or I used to be definitely like, yeah, I don't, let's just talk work. Let's not talk about personal life. We're here to talk work. Uh, This brings to, (laughs) to mind so many fascinating concepts. Why do you think people talk about sports or hobbies? sports is a super common one because when people are initially and in a space where they're able to just go back and forth small talk we call it Mm -hmm. you actually see a transaction a series of transactions occurring where uh, a person's like oh hey so uh, you watch golf at all i watch golf and then the person on the other side either picks it up or is like i don't watch golf I like to watch basketball. And you're like, do you watch basketball? Oh, yeah, I do too. We both watch basketball. That's cool. What's your favorite team? Oh, Gonzaga. Yeah. You like college? I like college. Or it's like, oh, I don't watch sports. What? Oh, that's the thing we use. I don't watch language. (laughs) I don't watch sports. What do you do? And so you see this this uh, this play out where people the small talk is actually how they're establishing a form of trust based on commonalities. Right. And I mean, that's the the rapid version where where did those come from? Right. Those came further back through the formative years, through the primary, secondary socialization, tertiary socialization where in that socialization, you get the attachment formation and identity formation and reflection occurring, which is a really fascinating DNI topic because when you tell somebody they will fail, what identity are you influencing? Do you mean as in like when you say when, that they're going to fail, do you mean like when you bring up like potentially like barriers to a certain group or what do you mean by when you tell them they're going to fail? So I'll take an example. It's called uh, in educational theory, they like to call it the Pygmalion effect. Blind studies where they have taken based on gender and made the statement prior to a test, a math test. And they have said, girls tend to not do as good on this test. So don't stress out about it. You'll be fine. Which group does worse on the test? The girls, when you remind them of a stereotype that's biased against them, or even a stereotype that's for them, actually, you could remind, for instance, Asians, like, ooh, Asians are good at math. Like, you guys are probably going to do great. And they, that group will do better. And here's the thing. It doesn't have to be a stereotype, except the stereotype is how we play out those repetitions in a systematic societal level. Because the Pygmalion effect works on the individual too. doesn't matter if you use a stereotype. That just gives it more social proof because everybody else is repeating the same message. So when you say, when you're talking about individual versus group, you're saying that like, for instance, if you were to, you know, just go to your daughter before a test and say, oh, you're really good at math. This is going to be easy for you. You're saying she would do better. It didn't, it, that wouldn't have to be a stereotype. That could be something that you Correct. attribute to her. Yeah. And uh, I mean, statistically, right? So it's not 100%. Everybody's going to always do better. But you'll see that there's a significant number of people spread out over the average who in performance will be improved 
or decreased by loaded statements. Daniel Kahneman, actually a really fascinating author. He wrote the book Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Oh, that's such a good book. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a, oh gosh, the, what is it? The theory of thinking of everyday life? I, something like that. It was a, a University of Australia, Queensland, I think, who put it out. And I was like, this was a fascinating course. And they went through Kahneman's work and they had all these studies showing how the fast thinking brain uses these trained muscles, right? The things we learn through neurons or other things for fast decision making without going into the critical thought. And yeah, so it, it's really crazy when you have a, a social proof based and social proof maybe is the wrong word to use in the context of DNI because people take proof to mean as evidence of, whereas social proof is used as more of a context of it's socially constructed proof, meaning other people said it, therefore my thinking fast system is going to believe it. We take recommendations from friends, right? I'm looking for a plumber. Any good ones in the area? Really crazy stuff. I don't know. I geek out about this. We can't go in too far to it. But um, yeah, that it plays out on the individual level when you do loaded statements indicating their performance especially if you have uh, any sort of power or respect or other type of differential um, where it's like, Nicole, I don't think you're a good fit for this. We should talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually have examples of that where it was when I was going to get a certain qualification at work and it, it's, you know, it's a qualification that is in production. It's mostly Honestly, there's mostly like males that are in that position. And since, you know, since when I did work in production, I worked in a trade that wasn't, you know, uh, out on the, on the deck plates as much, like out working on the ships. I kind of already had that insecurity that like, oh, maybe I won't do as well at this position because I don't know the ship systems as, as well as, you know, maybe some of the other trades. Um, but I did have a lot of people say, no, you'd be great. Like you should still get this qualification. It'll be good. But I had that insecurity already. And then there were times when I was getting my call that somebody would say, um, why do you, why do you want to do this position? And they weren't asking the, <laughs> the men that were coming with me. It wasn't a question that I ever heard directed at anyone else. It seemed like it was just directed at me. And it always made me second guess myself. And then one time I had a guy say, he was mentoring me. Because basically you go to different people and they mentor you to get information and sign offs. Yeah. And so I went to him to get mentored and he said, are you really sure that you want to do this position? And I didn't really know what to say to that because he didn't know me. So I didn't know why he would be asking me that question. Again, it didn't seem like a, there, he had nothing to base it off of. And he goes, I really think you'd do better at this other position. And the position that he pointed out was one that is mostly female. And then I've heard other people make fun of like, oh, that's a, that's an easy job. They don't really do anything. And it's again, a mostly female job. And so then that put this incredible insecurity. Like I, I was like, well, maybe he knows something I don't, maybe he like, why does he think I wouldn't do good at this job? Like it, it like really impacted me, even though probably someone from the outside wouldn't have even maybe even noticed that Wow! the interaction was so impactful to me because I was already insecure about looking around and going, Oh my God, I'm the only female that's doing this. Why is that? And then can I tell you something? There was actually this other woman 
that started coming to our training classes. And I remember seeing her and thinking like, yes, oh my God, I'm not alone. It made me feel so good just to see another woman and have her be in the classroom with me. Um, instead of just like me and about like seven or eight other males. And like I said, I just remember like it made, it made me feel so good. It made me feel hopeful. I felt like I can do this because she was really bubbly and like very girly. And for some reason that made it better. Cause I was like, I can just be myself and I'm going to be successful. And then I found out at the very, very end when I was just about to get my call that she was actually there for that other job that was mostly female. She was getting a totally different call and it broke my heart. I was so <laughs> sad. Um, oh man. And, and I ended up getting my call. I did great. My mentor said that I did an amazing job. Um, but I was after that, after that ordeal, I was too scared to go into that field. I ended up going for a field that I felt like, well, diversity and inclusion. This was kind of more the, the focus that I decided to go to, which was more management, more people focused, more kind of like an HR job. And I'll be honest, part of that was this is where more women are. So I felt like I fit in. I didn't stick out. If I fail, no one's going to say, oh yeah, she couldn't cut it. They're going to say, okay, well maybe this wasn't a fit for her. You know what I mean? Like I, it was more in my comfort zone, not to say this job is easy or anything like that. It's not, it's difficult and I love it. And I've learned so much, but I guess it was that other career path. I mostly didn't go into it because of fear. You wow. Know? So that's uh... interesting to think about. Yeah. And uh, I mean, especially when it's loaded with the the stereotypes in there that people repeat and like you, you mentioned something that's important too the representation, like you saw another and it was like, oh, my gosh, this is great. <laughs> you, you had to ruin the story, Nicole. At the end, it was the stereotypical role, I know. which I don't know. One of the things, too, because because some people they talk about like the concepts from diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility. And they talk about the concepts as if they only apply to this group or that group of people. But here's the reality. These things, the behaviors, we call them toxic leadership in any other form. So we we call it toxic leadership when it's a white male enacting it on other white males. Yeah. There's some disparity right there. And that's the thing, like, right, these concepts, they do apply to everyone. They absolutely do. And and basically kind of what some of the things that we're talking about right now is awareness, self-awareness. And we talk about that all the time. When we're talking about leadership development. And that's all this is because I guarantee you the people that said those things to me that just like caused havoc inside and made me lose confidence. None. I guarantee that not a single one of them had any negative intentions. They probably had no idea how their a, they had no idea that they had biases. I'm almost positive or how their words or their little kind of microaggressions had an impact on me. And so, yeah, that's just part of being a good leader is being aware of your biases and then being aware of how you impact other people. And it, it's not like, it's just part of being a good leader. That is so true. And like to share a very similar story to how these, these principles, they apply to everybody. And if you apply these principles to everybody, that's how, that's a good foundation for a leadership capacity. 
So the same qualification. I hadn't had the quote, what is it, the experience or checked the bucket on it. And so the Pygmalion effect we mentioned, that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. That's another common term for it. The identity formation that comes along with it, just with anybody. It's not just exclusive to one category of people or not, but anybody. Is that when you receive this feedback from people that they make, regardless of your actual capabilities or the potential for growth and development too, because that's one of the things we, I think, gets forgotten so often is that none of us were the same people we were 10 years ago. And hopefully What's that? I said, hopefully we're better. Almost everybody I'll say is better. Some people maybe aren't alive and you can't change that. Um, that just got dark. So, but the the capacity, like if, if there's anybody who wants to argue that, yeah, people don't improve, it's like, okay, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? You make all the same mistakes. You have the same limited skill set that you had back then. It's probably a good conversation starter, a little confrontational. But the principle going back to is if somebody wants to attempt something, I, I like to think of, and uh, Dr. Popa from Gonzaga, he's one of these people who he kind of puts this positive psychology into things where you recognize the challenge and opportunity in every situation and what is inherent in a challenge, where you are and where you're going, where you are changes. So to measure people's worth based on where they are now isn't, I think, the most important thing. Where people are going, well, that's an idea, concept, a place they haven't gotten to yet. So what I'm always left with is the in-between. How are they getting there? And if we can focus the, the positive psychology, the how do we go through this challenge growth and recognize and empower people and provide the environment where we're like, as a human, here is the opportunities before you. I mean, that's the thing too, because I was like, oh, you probably wouldn't be good at this job. You don't have the experience that these others do. And in my mind, I start telling myself that same thing. And, you know, then I, I go into these conversations and they're quote unquote high level conversations. And I'm just like looking back like, okay, this person doesn't understand where that number metric is even coming from. Like, and that person is gaming the system. I'm like, okay, maybe I do understand a little bit because I understand it enough to understand the behaviors that should be in place and how the system works, what people are actually doing with it. And yet still, there's this bit of me. When those jobs come up, I'm like, oh, man, I can't do that. I don't have the merit badge. I mean, all those other people do. They did their time. Were they successful by the measure of success that we strive to achieve? I mean, that's that's a question for the eons. There's all these reasons why they are. But yeah, you just got me going on it. It's like the thing that makes it so much worse, though, is these principles apply to everybody. Yet, statistically, more people who are not male and not white and not straight get applied the stereotypes and get told these things at a higher rate. That's where the diversity, right. equity, and inclusion is so important. Right. But I think, I think another key though is, you know, 
we have to realize that you know it's a two-pronged approach because well you're exactly correct that if if we remind people i think i think it depends on when we remind people because the study right is you're reminding someone right before they do a task so i think it's really important to remember the context when i was okay so here's the thing i already have experienced you know sexism in the workplace i've already experienced that i do believe that there are barriers for me that typically men don't face in the workforce that's from my own experience that i believe that um but i still was going after this qualification it wasn't until i was reminded in the middle of going in this qual like in the middle of actively pursuing the qualification that it went oh oh my gosh you're right that applies to this situation i'm freaked out like it didn't really affect me until i was in the middle of a mm-hmm. in the middle of an activity so I think it's really, I think you bring up a really good point that we got to be aware of how we're talking about this and how it might impact people's performance. Because at the same time, we also have to talk about these things and we have to acknowledge them because there are stereotypes and messages that are all over in our culture. So if we don't talk about those things, it doesn't make them go away. In fact, it makes people feel powerless and like they don't have a voice and like, maybe they're crazy and they're just imagining things that's not really happening. So there's like this two pronged approach where you have to address it and you have to start to change those messages at at a cultural level, whether it's your organization or even our culture in general, but then also be building people up and empowering them and doing that personal empowerment with sponsoring and mentorship Mm -hmm. to say, okay, yes, this might be a stereotype, but it doesn't apply to you. You can do this you can achieve this and helping, you know, each person kind of go on that journey. So like I said, it's, 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 it's difficult because you kind of got to come at it from multiple angles. For instance, I just saw this amazing documentary. It's on Netflix. It's called, I think it's called this changes everything or that changes everything. And it's about women in, uh, in Hollywood, female directors and, and actors. And it was so fascinating. It gives all this history but basically they put together th- this software, this system to actually go in and analyze the images that we see in movies and television and basically look at representation. And what they found was that like more often than not, movies had more male characters than female characters. And it was almost, I think they were saying like 17 to 27% women were represented which obviously we know women and men are 50 50. So underrepresented in these things that we see every day on the TV and how that communicates something to us yeah. uh, as females. It was just really interesting and inspiring. You captured a very important, an important concept. And I think it's, it's hard for some people to look at. And, you know, so as far as like where somebody gets the message, I think, you mentioned the specific performance instance like happened to you in the middle of going through the process. Uh, but then you have these repeated uh, messages, imagery, societal influences where the stereotypes are re- repetitive and you see it coming from all these different points. Sticking your head in the sand like an ostrich and trying to ignore a situation won't make it go away. Even if everybody did it on a global scale, what we would actually have happen is just a bunch of people with their heads in the sand suffocating. The concept that I go back to 
and this is uh, from positive psychology. The very simple principle is you don't tell people they have a problem. You tell them, here's a path to this new level, new state, new challenge. We have it in different ways in different organizational cultures played out. And you can see these different ways that it's framed of either negative feedback loops or negative controls or positive feedback loops and positive controls. Like we even have it in some of the, um, uh, the maintenance culture where, you know, in one, you must ask for permission to perform each task versus in another, the opposite method of control is you may perform your job, but don't do the things I tell you not to. And how you can look at the same principle with communicating about these societal issues, I, I think, and this is, you know, my personal experience is sitting in tribal school summits in high school where, you know, not only do I look really white and there's, you know, you got some of the elders sitting in the back just glaring at you. There's all these students from the tribe there that are, their lives could gain from so much more support and attention. And the message that their key speaker came out, they talked about how hard it is how hard it is, how hard it is for everybody and how hard it is to succeed. But look, I was able to do it. Subtle framing. The message most repeated was how hard it was. Looking at like for these, and it's hard. I'm not going to say it's easy. I just did it right there. The challenge, the opportunity, the way we can go and grow and look at some of these complex issues is recognize these things have occurred and how do we go and grow from there? Um, and I think that's one of the challenges because a lot of people, they, they debate about whether we, well, if we just stopped talking about it, it wouldn't happen. It's only happening because we say it will. Right. I've heard that. Not everybody says that, but there are some who are like, Oh, it's a self-inflicted issue. You keep telling people they're not going to succeed. They won't succeed. Well, there's, some truth to that, but that's where the message is important of here is how we can lay up journey to success. I think that's my personal opinion. I'm not the expert though. I'm curious. What are your thoughts on that? And how does that play out in the DNI literature? Well, I think, you know, I think your example actually, or your, uh, the, the example that you shared really shows how important it is to be aware of your audience and be very clear about what you're trying to achieve. It is completely reasonable to have a conversation, a presentation, training, whatever, whatever uh, you're packaging that information in, where you're going and saying, this is hard and here's all the barriers. It makes sense to, to have that go to senior leadership or business leaders or politicians or the government, an audience that can do something about it or an audience that needs to be aware of it. But you're right. Like you talk about how it impacted you. And again, think about the context that you were in. You were a young person just about to step out and start making, you know, their way in life. And so it, it's exactly kind of that experiment you're being primed with. Okay, guys, you're about to go out and do this. Oh my God, it's so hard. It's gonna be hard for you because of, you know, whatever it is, your race, your ethnicity, your social economic status, your gender. 
I agree. I think you have to be careful on who your audience is and what you're trying to achieve. It's one thing to to say like, Hey, I understand you may have had these experiences. I understand this may have happened. This is how you succeed, or this is how we move forward. I think setting up systems that do support underrepresented groups is really important. And some sometimes to get those programs, again, you do have to have these conversations about what's going wrong and really look at the data in the current state. But we do have to do a better job overall of that individual focus, the sponsorship, the mentorship, and how we help encourage people and train them, give them skills to overcome potential barriers that they face. And again, you said this before, it's it's not just impacting underrepresented groups. It impacts people from lots of different areas of diversity. Even if you are a you know white male, we see historically that that group has had a lot more privilege, but there's intersectionality, right? You may have a lack of privilege in areas of you know socioeconomic status. You may have grown up very poor and there's there's different barriers that come with, you know, lots of different identities that that are marginalized potentially in our society. Uh, so again, we have to be aware of that. And that's one of the great reasons that I love diversity, equity, inclusion, because it actually does help everyone at the end. And I know a lot of groups have felt like they're not included, but anytime that you help marginalize people in our society, you're really making it a better society for everyone. And I do truly believe that. That's fascinating. So here's the curveball question. Okay. When we're looking at people and recognizing their personal past and history and everything and how that's influenced them, what if you are a person who just wants to talk about the work? Well, I guess what I would say is that it's interesting with diversity, equity, inclusion. There's lots of topics that are like this. I think any topic where you're looking at a self-awareness or cultural awareness, people are going to be at all different places in their journey. So I think, you know, I shared a little bit earlier about how I was at a place in my career for a little bit, you know, where I was like, I'm here to get work done. You know, I'm not really here to be social and you don't need to tell me about your family. I'm not going to meet them. <laughs> Sounds so silly to say that now, right? But I just want to focus on work. Uh, you know, we can have small talk. We can, you know, have be a friend at work, but I don't, I don't need to know that much about your personal life. But the thing is, is that as I've grown as a person and a leader and realized that people's outside life is part of who they are and it's meaningful to them. And that's part of how you make a connection. That's part of how you care about someone. Legitimately, the whole person, my, my opinions have changed on that. So just because you may not be at a place where you want to hear something or you think you need to hear something, there is valuable self-growth in being exposed to lots of different perspectives and lots of different information. So you may not know this about me, but I grew up, you know, if, if I was in, in high school right now, for instance, if I was the person I was in high school, there's no way I would ever have this job if I still had that mindset because I thought that diversity and inclusion was dumb. It was reverse racism. It was not needed. We didn't have sexism. We don't have racism anymore. Those things are in the past. They don't apply. And I, I thought so differently than I do now. And throughout the years of meeting different people, being exposed to trainings, having people come out and speak, those were the things that opened my mind to perspectives that I didn't understand or didn't even think happened. Like I remember hearing some speakers and going, no, 
that couldn't have happened in America. There's no way that happened. Or there's no way that happened and I didn't learn about it. And that, unfortunately, that has happened so many times to me now uh, that I have just a totally different perspective about some of these topics. But it's it's because of these amazing growth experiences that I was fortunate enough to have. So I think that organizations and leaders have to be really conscious then of what skills do we want people to have? And in our current society today, we're saying a good leader has to be culturally competent. They have to. They have to be inclusive because we want to recruit the best people. We want to retain the best people. We want people with different ideas and perspectives. So that is a skill then that people have to have, meaning that even if it seems like they're not ready, we need to expose them to valuable experiences that will help them have a better self-awareness of themselves and also better understand different cultures and groups. Wow. That's fascinating, especially the the cultural competency. And I think that that plays out in so many different intersections and changes in society right now. So not only have we been undergoing a process of globalization uh, accelerated by technology, the internet, right? You can have friends and order products from across the globe and travel has gotten faster. I mean, at least pre-pandemic times. But the the changing structure of the workforce too. Like, so working between the the different geographic entities in our organization, like I've learned that just the organizations that are geographically separated have their own culture. And it's important to recognize because the things that the people at that culture uh, mirror or mimic or value can be different. And so and the language is even different. We could be saying the same word and then you start unpacking it, you start pulling the thread and you find that they're doing an entirely different process or talking about an entirely different thing. Given the state of the, the global pandemic and the changing structure of the work agreement, where now there's industries where 25 to 75% of their workforce is going to be work from home, work from anywhere, work from everywhere. You see that the people, the, the number of cultures, because we have like the supra culture, like here's the nation. We have Western culture. We have folks from the East Coast, the West Coast, from the Pacific, from down South. You start going into the specific states. You got urban culture you have suburban, you have rural, and then you start going into your organization and, you know, between different trades or professions and other ones, you start seeing these different cultures. Some people hear culture and they're like, yeah, I learned how to speak a foreign language. I'm good. But it's no, like really recognizing how different people have different value, belief, and languages and different practices and artifacts that they use. And they may even say the same thing. And it has a whole different set of expectations with it. Absolutely. Especially with the great resignation. Like, I mean, that right there is both a huge societal shift right now with the changing value structures of society and what they are preferencing and putting their attention on. And it's also a huge opportunity to change how we approach the work contract between the organization and 
individuals. And I'm curious, what, what is being talked about in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility strategies, literature, culture about how, how do we make sure we have thriving, striving organizations given all these changes happening? You know, one of our jobs, right, as a diversity, equity, inclusion program manager is to really look at the demographics of an organization and help identify, you know, what are the values of those demographics so that we can retain, uh, retain skilled, talented employees, right? You know, we've kind of always looked, for instance, at generations and said, okay, what is the, what is the demographic of the generations? Who's coming in? Who's leaving? What, who takes up the majority of our workforce? What are some of those shared experiences of these generations? What are some of the differences in this generation versus this generation? How do we integrate those differences? How do different generations work together? Uh, how do we retain people from different generations? And granted, generations are, are kind of honestly rather broad stereotypes for a whole group of people. So it's not like that's an exact science. It just kind of gives us an, an idea of some of the potential differences. But there's other things that you can do as well, such as stay surveys, for instance. Starbucks did um, a series of stay surveys to figure out what are the main reasons that people stay here, that they work here. What is their motivation? And that's kind of what the generations is sort of trying to get at, right? What are people's motivations for working, motivations for a job? What do they expect from their employer? And I think right now uh, with the great resignation, and this is just my opinion from, from some of what I've seen, you know, people got this opportunity, a lot of them to telework or even to take a, a break from work and not work for a while with COVID. And then as people started to go back to work, there were shortages. And so we see some signing bonuses to try to get new people in or raises where the people that had stayed, the people that were um, loyal to the company that kept working there, sometimes they didn't actually see some of the benefits of new people that were being brought in. And so you're, I think you're really partly seeing this this new generation kind of saying, you know what? I'm tired of the grind. I'm tired of going to work and not feeling valued. I'm tired of this, you know, this culture where I don't feel like I'm included. I don't feel like I'm doing important work. Experience is so important to us in our culture overall right now. Like we'll pay extra money to get that VIP experience to the concert or, you know, the comedy show or whatever it is. We care about experiences now more than ever that matters at work too. So we're hearing people say, you know, man, at my job, like they're working at, you know, grocery store or something that we wouldn't consider necessarily like a, a really high quality, like long-term career, but they're saying, my boss is great to me. I love the environment. People treat me good. I feel respected. Like, yeah, I'm not making as much money, but I have benefits and I'm treated well. And we're seeing that be so much more important to people. So, um, if companies do want to recruit and retain top talent, they have to be very aware of the different groups that make up the labor force and what those groups want and make those things a priority as they move forward. Wow. Nicole, as always, I mean, this has just been an amazing exchange of ideas, talking through the complexities of leadership, what, it, what it's going to take 
focused on the future, if we're really looking to impact, inform, and inspire people to take this opportunity with this great societal shift to change and improve and get better and strive, the, the challenge, the opportunity is here. And I think it's only going to get even better for those who embrace it. So I appreciate you taking the, the opportunity to share this impactful information, Nicole. Absolutely. Thanks, Kyle.